0: This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Now, Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, that our hope is not fixed in this world. Lord, indeed, in Christ we are sojourners in this land and that no matter what persecution or tribulation arises in this world, our home is in glory. Help us to hold fast to that, Lord, and to live to your glory in this life, in this world, in Jesus' mighty name. We praise you. Amen. Hallelujah. So, we're looking at true Christianity and we're unlocking biblical truths about spirituality. Um, And so, we want to consider... Uh, a question at this point, uh, and that is the question of freedom in this life uh, from the results of the bond of sin. This is one of the larger areas of consideration because when people come to Christ, they can often carry with them uh, uh, into the Christian life very deep and abiding issues of personality and, and issues of guilt and shame and all these kinds of things. Um, but Christianity sits in, in contrast to much of the, to m- much of the intellectual thinking of our, our times and it's important that we understand where the Bible sits on these kinds of things. So we are living our lives, having been affected by the consequences of the fall, and by the consequences of our own sin in this life prior to coming to Jesus, and like someone who contracts a a disease, um, you know, maybe a sexually transmitted disease, and then they become Uh, you know, um, righteous in their behavior afterwards. The disease doesn't go away simply because they've changed their behavior. Mm -hmm. There are lingering effects that can continue out of that. And so we have to see that there is a separation from our true selves as a result of the fall uh, and a result of sin. Now, we have to keep this in the right order. Sin causes bondage and that results uh, in consequences out of that bondage. So sin causes bondage and the results of that bondage. It's not the other way around. We cannot have the biblical answer. We can't have the Uh, The promises that God makes to the Christian concerning freedoms from the bonds of sin in this present life until two things are true. If you want freedom of conscience and if you want freedom from the bonds of sin, these two things must be true. And that is that we are first true believers, and second, that we are walking in accordance with the teachings concerning freedom from the bondage of sin. Walking the spirit-filled, spirit-guided, word-instructed Christian life. This is a base that we must establish and walk from that base. That's, that's what we need to do, is, is walk in that way. Um, some people are kind of blessed with a psychology, I guess, that uh, and, and I use that word blessed in very loose terms, maybe a little sarcastic, that they can commit certain actions and not feel the pangs of conscience afterwards. Uh, you know, and and there are those among true believers who Come to Christ, and uh, and they don't. They go on. And they say, "Well, you know, that's what I was like before. I can't change any of that." And so, you know, we move on. Uh, others, though, are riddled with conscience, uh, even after coming to Christ, and and it takes a lot for them to be able to deal with those things and be able to move on clearly. And so, it can. The two. Those two views can, can both be extremes that can be debilitating in a Christian's life because on the one hand, a person can be very calloused about the effects of their, their former behaviours and on the other hand, a person can be debilitated in their Christian living because of this ongoing sense of guilt about stuff that may not necessarily be, uh, be right in the way in which it's handled or lived with. So, we need to consider this. If we present the Christian life wrongly, we can just be presenting a, pretty much a psychological trick to people uh, about Christianity. For example, if you come to Jesus, everything will be great. Great you know as uh, the gospel message of the 80s was was littered with these kinds of things you know that that it was it was shallow and and it was um, you know it was appealing to people's feelings appealing to their lostness in that sense of this absence of meaning in their lives but we need to understand objective truth to experience true freedom we need to understand these truths and so before we look at them at what these truths are let's let's uh, have a look at a couple of texts for these uh, these couple of messages 1 John chapter 1 verses 4 through 9 and these things we write to you that your joy may be full hallelujah Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You'll see the words that he uses there. Walk and practice. Practice. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from most of our sin. (laughs) From all sin. Hallelujah. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And remember, he's writing to believers. And this is the the difficulty of the time in which we're in, the now not yet truth. The, you know, now spiritually we're seated with Christ and we're in heavenly places and yet we're stuck here at 66 Bradman Drive in Cranbourne West and uh, we're still battling with the effects of, of sinful practices in our lives. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins the reason he's just to forgive us our sins is because they're dealt with in Christ, remember, not because of anything we've done. Hallelujah. It's because of what Jesus did and his declaration that it is finished. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Now, there there are important words in this. And those words center around the living in sin and the walking in it, the practice of it. Uh, and so uh, definitely John does not declare a message of sinless perfection in that passage. He says that if we sin, if we confess our sins, f- we are faithfully forgiven. 1 Corinthians 10, 12... And onwards says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And the ability there is the ability to withstand in Christ. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's the ESV. I think I've got, uh, yeah, the ESV up there. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you, overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, the New King James says, but with temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 1 John 5 Verses 3 and 4. In fact, this this is in the NIV, the nominally incorrect version. Uh, There's another person has called it the nearly inspired version. Um, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Now the hyper-faith people present that as as our faith in every given situation and not necessarily faith directed at Christ. Um, That's a separate story that we won't get trapped into. For this is the love of God, the New King James says, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome for whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Objective truths. Christianity presupposes that we are in a supernatural universe and salvation is supernatural in its basis. This universe is one spoken into existence by the Lord God. It is supernatural, therefore, by its origin and nature. And Scripture declares that it is continued in its orbits uh, by the power of his word. If these facts were not true, then man's effort to live biblically and receive (coughs) spiritual blessings can be no more than a psychological trick. We And we'll, we'll unlock this a little bit more as we go on. But behind this truth, there stands a more basic truth and that is that there is a personal infinite god in whose image man is made now when we say a personal god we're not talking about hinduistic belief that that talks about you making a god you know you 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 come into the house and your grandmother who's sick Next to her is the bottle and she's been drinking from it. and you know that that water was collected from the stream behind the house. and you think the stream is a god because now she's become well, where maybe she was dehydrated and dying, you know because of that. And so um, the stream is not a God. and that's not the type of personal God that we're talking about. When we say personal here, we mean that God has the attributes, of personhood, of individuality, of character, of intelligence, of of relationship, these kinds of things. Christianity presupposes the existence of this personal, infinite God in whose image we are made. This is vital because it gives clarity to the concept of human personality. Our personality hasn't come from nowhere it, our personality has come from somewhere. It's part of God's creation for us, and you, you know this is this harkens to the questions, the great philosophical questions of what am I here for? What is this experience of relationship and love about? These are. Very deep philosophical questions that people often ask. Why do I have this relational bond to other people? Where does that come from? If you and I are just uh, a random chance collection of atoms and molecules that over time has developed into whatever it's developed into, why do we have personality? Why do we have these attributes within us that doesn't make any sense? Now... Another of these objective truths is mankind's fundamental dilemma is a moral one. Your fundamental dilemma in life is not a financial one. It's not an educational one. It's not about population replacement, for example, as as Phil and Jad were talking (coughs) about just before. The Basic problem of humanity is one of sin sin, and out of that flows deep issues of guilt, real moral guilt, not just guilt feelings. You know, as one person said, um, uh, you know, a counsellor said to them, You you uh, you seem to have an abiding sense of guilt, and he said, "I'm an Irish Catholic. Of course, I'm guilty, you know." And um, and so, you know. But it's not just that. You and I have committed real sin, and attached to that real sin is a real sense of guilt. We have committed real sin against a real God, who is a real personal God. When you sin against someone that you're closely related to, you know that that sin affects that person. Because we have come into relationship with God, when we sin against God, we affect our relationship with Him. Well, modern theologies, uh, modern psychologies, modern counselling is centred a lot on trying to remove people's guilt. But it tries to remove that guilt without a standard, necessarily a standard of reasoning as to why that guilt should be removed. Questioning, first of all, why it's there, and then trying to resolve as to how that guilt can genuinely be removed. This is where the, the gospel is, is exceptional to modern psychological uh, methods and its limitations. Man is genuinely guilty before a holy God who exists and against whom we have sinned. Apart from these truths, any hope of freedom from the bonds of sin is a cruel illusion. Unless we can understand the creation that God is relational that he has attributes of personality and that we can come into relationship with god uh, with god excuse me and that our fundamental dilemma is one of a moral dilemma that leads to genuine guilt for sin and contravenes that relationship with god unless we can come to understanding these truths the hope of freedom is an illusion so freedom from one's conscience how do we how do we come to that because you know we've heard some testimonies in this church and we've heard that some people here i know that doesn't include the majority of us but some have really committed some sins you know in fact all of us have committed real and genuine sins. There are two dangerous attitudes. The first is the danger of perfectionism. We're not talking about house cleaning here, you know. I'm just such a perfectionist. A place for everything and everything in its place, you know. We're not talking about that, okay? We're talking about um, this idea that Christians can achieve a state of sinless perfection. This is a teaching that Christians can be perfect in this life. Now, we've probably interacted enough to know that none of us have reached that point. Um, uh, But this view falls into two categories... The teaching that at a certain point one has such a profound experience in God that they never sin again. Um, You know? At a certain point that will be true. But you won't be here anymore. And another view is that we may know perfection for the moment, that, that we can be in a given moment and know sinless perfection in that moment. Now, um, it's true that our lives are lived moment by moment. We talked about approaching temptation in that view, that, that when temptation happens to you, understand that in that moment, that moment is where the test is at. That moment is where you and I need to direct our attention toward God and, and be earnestly seeking him in that moment for deliverance from that temptation. So could we expect to have perfection either totally or even for this one moment? Right now, or right now, or right now, or, or make that moment a little longer if you want, you know? Can you expect to have sinless perfection in that moment? You see... This gets us caught up into endless discussions and it brings into this phrase that's sometimes used of being delivered from all known sin and and this is probably closer to what Wesley taught, that a, that a person uh, can become aware of a sin in their lives and when they genuinely repent of that sin, genuinely repent in genuine contrition, that they will then be able to live in victory over that sin for the rest of their lives. And and that uh, this means though that other sins they're going to become aware of and faced with the be faced with the same circumstances for those sins. Now but as we consider first the word of God and then the human experience, the problem is in the word known It's a a problem of the word conscious, for example. If we talk of conscious sin, the problem is using either of these words in that since the, the fall, man has habitually fooled himself. Jeremiah makes the declaration that the heart is desperately wicked and deceptive. Who can know it? And then it says in the next verse that it's God who tries the reins of the heart. And the mind. It's it's he who knows it. And part of God trying the reins, so to speak, is to get response out of us so that we become aware of the deception that is in our hearts and minds. We fool ourselves deep deep inside if we think that we can fully understand the depth of our consciousness the depth of our understanding even of ourselves the more the holy spirit puts his finger on my life and the deeper he goes into my life the more i understand the deep wells of my nature and the more i understand the actual abiding issues within me that have been deceptively held away from the presence of god modern psychology speaks of an of the unconscious And the subconscious, Um, and in so many ways, the philosophy behind these things are fundamentally wrong. But it's right in pointing out that we are much deeper than what we appear to be on the surface. There's much more to us. It's very difficult for us to plumb the depths of our own hearts. This is where, uh, you know, our busy generations. Yesterday, I had the, um, you know, the privilege of sitting and watching a, a little show on ABC about uh, a man who teaches parents to do slow parenting. It's called, and it literally was uh, taking away, for example, all the gadgets and screens and different things from life, and. And, you know, some of these families had children who had 16. One of them had a child who had 16 different after-school curricular activities from piano and language to sports and athletics, swimming, uh, all different kinds of things every day of the week, seven days a week, all these kinds of things in order to give the child, this is the mother's excuse, I'm trying to give him as many opportunities as he can to show his excellence. Uh, had She did admit it had a lot to do with her own uh, desires, um, actually. But he was getting people to slow down and take these things away. Lo and behold, two of the children in one family in this little experiment were going to sleep within five minutes of hitting the bed because they had no screen time in the evenings at all. Within five minutes, laying in bed, one boy, he'd lay, he'd lay asleep every night for an hour, not able to sleep. And from the very first day that, that he stopped playing Xbox, from that very first day, he was able to sleep within five minutes of going to bed. And that happened for the four weeks of the experiment. So much so, he's, he committed himself as like an 11-year-old to only playing Xbox one hour, one day on the weekend, you know, what a great decision for that young guy. See, what, when psychology talks about these things, as the subconscious and the conscious and, and all these kinds of things, it recognises something, but it doesn't really get to see where that's really going. And one person described us like an iceberg. We're one-tenth above and nine-tenths below in our lives. What we see on the surface is only the very shallow part of us. We have a shallow encounter with each other. It's a very, very simple thing for us to fool ourselves. And this is why the question surrounds the word known. To say I can have freedom from all known sins means I have to acknowledge the question of what do I know? What do I really know about these things? And... You know, when you get into a wrestle with the Holy Spirit over your life, you realize that there is there are things he's showing you that you just didn't see before for many, many various reasons. We are under a covenant of grace. Amen. Before the fall was a covenant of works. They were to keep these works in the garden. The covenant of works was destroyed by deliberate, free, unconditioned choice towards sin. It was a defiance of God's instruction, blatantly. In its place, by the grace of God, beginning with the promise of Genesis 3.15, man was given a promise of the work of the Messiah. In Genesis 3.15, spoken to Satan, the Lord says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. That's interesting. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So from the time of the fall onwards, everything rests upon the finished work of the cross. Right from that time, God says, This is coming. This time is coming. That's where it's all going to be dealt with in that time. So any real victory is not upon ourselves. It's not in ourselves. Any real victory that the believer experiences belongs to Christ. And it is out of that relationship with Christ Jesus that we get to experience any and all real victory in our lives. Now, that's a glorious spot for us to be in because we can point away from ourselves. Because prior to Jesus, all we did was point to ourselves. You know, everything was about ourselves all the time. To in this place, we can be in the the terrible place of temptation and we can go pleading toward the Lord in that time, place our trust and faith in Him, and we can glorify Him for it. 1 Corinthians 10. 30 to 31 says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So any righteousness you experience in your life, glory in God. Any sanctification you experience, don't chalk it up to your disciplines. Glory in Christ. You and I are frail. We are but dust. If we begin to think and to grow in the idea of our own personal victory, then there's no true victory in that to the extent that I'm thinking about my sanctification. There's no real sanctification. I've been sanctifying myself. No, no, no. You have a monastic view in that case. You are believing that by the labor of your own will, you're able to circumvent or, 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 or overcome areas of temptation. That's self-effort. We must see it always as Christ Jesus. Bring each victory to his feet. Glorify in him in that victory. Otherwise, pride is right at the doorstep. And that may be a worse or result in a worse sin over which we have not had victory. So the danger of perfectionism. The second danger is the danger of a low view of sin. A low view of sin. Could there be something that describes a vast portion of the Christian church in the 20th, 21st century better than than number two? A low view of sin? If you and I are ones who confess faith in Christ and we trust in Christ for our entry into heaven, is it right that we would deny him of the glory for the victories won in life now by having a low view of sin? That we would commit ourselves into actions of sin because we have a low view of the the consequence of sin because I'm in Jesus now and my sin is dealt with in him? What an awful thought. The Bible makes a distinction between temptation and sin. There is a, a distinction between these things. Hebrews 4 verse 14 says that Christ was tempted in every point like as we. Yet, the Bible says with great emphasis, without sin. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, these weaknesses are in the context of temptation and sin. He, he can sympathize with them. Remember, God took on human form, subject to human frailty. He, he experienced fatigue. He experienced tiredness, hunger, all these things the scripture records, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, if you study this passage out, you will be challenged by it, the idea that temptation uh, itself is born from the sinful desires of the heart, yet Christ had no sin, uh, and so, you know, there's going to be a challenge for you as you study that out. But there is a difference between temptation and sin in this passage. That there would be an, a, a temptation towards sin, and that there is a committing of that sin. These are two different things. And the scripture makes it clear here that just because we're tempted does not mean that we must follow through, and that the man. Jesus Messiah overcame those temptations without sinning. First Corinthians 10 12 and 13 therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you such as is common uh, to men uh, overtaken you except such as is common to man. but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 1 John 5, 3-4 For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's not we who overcome the world in our own strength. We do not have power uh, within ourselves to overcome the world. The overcoming is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our faith in Him. There can be a victory, a practical victory, if we are to humble ourselves before God and declare our weakness to Him and declare our trust in His victory. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This is not faith in faith. This is a faith in Christ, his finished work. God has promised and the Bible has declared that there is a way to escape temptation. Do, do we believe that? Yes. Amen? Yes. You know, that, that old saying, the devil made me do it, that's not going to cut it with God. Having spoken of these two dangers—the danger of perfectionism, the danger of a low view of sin—let's move on. Uh, what do we do when sin re-enters one's life? What what happens? Supposing that in the and as we've read, you know, for when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, right? Supposing in that moment by moment living of the Christian life, we falter. Um, uh, our fondness for a specific sin has had its uh, come across, uh, you know, our lives, and and as a consequence, we've uh, committed ourselves to a course of action. Uh, And instead of drawing in faith close to Christ, we've committed ourselves to that sin. The reality of the practice of living moment by moment by faith in God at that moment has been sidestepped. Instead, what's happened is, we have neglected that living in true spirituality in that moment and we've said, no, nah, I'm, I'm going with this. This is fun. This is appealing. This satisfies my flesh. And you know, the reality is out of that that we know that something changes in that. Something changes in our relationship with God something changes within us that quietness that peace has gone you could bring it down to a really practical situation really practical husbands and wives are instructed in scripture to love one another oh no no the husband is to love the wife and the loves wife to obey now in Titus wives are told that they should learn off the older women how to love their husbands. So so loving one another is a scriptural position and you know it, it fits anyway with the basic command to love one another. You know, I mean it's it's not rocket science, you know. The husbands just need a little bit more biblical injunction in it. How are we to love? Well, men are given really specific instructions that we're to love as Christ loved. That's sacrificial. Sacrificing for their wives. How should the the wife love? Well, love your neighbor as yourself would be a starting point. Love and then walk in the obedience of Scripture uh, towards him in other points. Now, if you and I... In you know, if I'm in my marriage relationship, I'm faced with a situation where where our dialogue is being tested because we have two contrary views, and so our you know our ability to communicate together is now being tested. And suddenly, my pride is on the line. This is where the challenge comes in that moment right there in that moment, am I going to live in Christ and love this woman that I've yoked to sacrificially, love her as the scripture commands? And is she going to love me as she loves, uh, as her neighbor, as she's to seek that love for herself? With that guidance, it's quite easy for us to then navigate through that situation and behave biblically. That would be living in that moment and giving that situation up to God, tempering the temptation to behave fleshly, tempering that and yielding that up to the Lord and walking in it in a biblical manner. Now, you know, the truth is that I could still talk calmly and politely on the outside, but be filled with rage and hate on the inside, that also is a wrong response. That right response is that I love this person that I'm yoked to in this marriage bond, that I love her biblically, deep down and not just with tempered words on the outside. And so it comes down to the very practical elements of life every day, that in that moment, we respond to each other biblically. In that moment, we share love with each other biblically. You know, if we look at ourselves and we think about God's creation... This, this perfect being who put us in the world, we could look at mankind and we could say, God failed bad. But a believer is not lost from God's care and love when sin re-enters. A believer may experience separation in the parent child relationship with our father god in that time and by separation i don't mean i just mean a breakdown in the relationship that we have with god and think of a marriage keep coming back to that 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 marriage union because that is the the way in which paul so often writes when he talks about our union with the father So is there a way back into relationship with the Father? Or is it like some fine porcelain vase that's been, you know, uh, or fine china vase that's been dropped on the floor and and broken into a thousand shards and uh, it can never be repaired again properly? You know, thank God that the gospel includes this. The Bible deals with things in reality. Scripture knows what you and I are like. It knows what we are. God knows what we are. Amen? The first step back is not something new. Remember, we read at the start this morning, 1 John 1, 4 to 9, These things are right to you, that your joy might, might, may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So, don't be dishonest about who we are. Don't be dishonest about who we are. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Walking in the light is about, is about recognising our sin when we fall. That is part of walking in the light. Don't hide it over, don't gloss it over, but bring it out to God. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice that whole sentence is in the present and ongoing tense. If we confess, and whenever we sin again, if we confess then, he is faithful and just to forgive us. This is not sinless perfection. This is... Walking in the light, in, in that moment in which we do sin, it's about bringing it before God and saying, God, I've been hopeless in this time. I've sinned against you. If we say that we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. After a Christian has sinned, he is to admit to God what he has done. Don't make excuses. Don't excuse it. Oh, she just worked me up so much. Just couldn't take it anymore. You know Don't call it by another name. Don't psychologize it for man, I'll tell you. I, you know, I can't help it that I I committed adultery because this is just the the you know, the the instinct that God has put in me so that the, the human race will be will not go into extinction. If you believe evolutionary theory, then adultery is nothing wrong with it at all. You're just propagating the species. That's all spreading the seed. That's all. That's all it is. Don't call it by another name. Call it what it is. Name it for what it is. Don't blame it on someone else. She just brings the worst out in me all the time. Don't call it less than a sin. Be sorry for it. Call it for what it is and be sorry for it. Uh, Don't you hate it when someone comes to you and says, look, I just want to make an apology and, you know, if, and straight away you hear that word, if, And you think, hmm, I don't think I hear an apology coming. I think I hear an excuse. You know, if I offended you, if, well, we wouldn't be in this situation if you hadn't. You know, make it clear to God, God, I have offended you. I've sinned against you. Make it clear to your spouse. Make it clear to the person that you've offended, whether you've lied to them or whatever it may be. Make it clear. Own your actions. Understand that that's what Christ died on the cross for. Your sin. That Tearing of the fabric of relationship that we have with God is part of his purpose with us so that we will look immediately what's going on in my life where's Where's your love God in this situation that we will look and we will deal with the sin that is that is breaking down the fabric of that relationship oh, we need to conclude here I think this morning um uh, there's still quite a bit to go through in this uh, uh, in this slide. Let's let's just get through uh, Hebrews 12. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Summarized. When God chastens you, it's because he loves you as children. If there's no chastening, you're not sons. You're not children. God loves us tremendously. 9 to 11. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not... Much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live, for they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful in the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Uh, You know... I don't envy parenting in this generation because of these many issues, but let's stay on track here. God's chasing for us is for a purpose. And that purpose? The peaceable fruit of righteousness. The last line in there. That afterwards, yes, it may be painful in the moment, but afterwards, there is the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Many years ago, in the first year of our marriage, and uh, you know, our little Reese was due to be born, um, and uh, I said some some really dumb things to Suzanne one time in front of friends, and and tried to embarrass her. Only made an idiot of myself, but but it. It angered her and I was out of line uh, entirely and I got home uh, we, we hardly spoke which was you know really unusual for us not to talk things through and so I got home and and I went and got the Bible and opened to Ephesians and Suzanne was, uh, she just made her way pretty much straight to bed and I did not want to discuss things with me that night because I've been a bozo and um And so I went into the room and I had my Bible open and she told me afterwards she thought that I was just going to preach at her, tell her where she was wrong, all these things. But instead I said to her, the scripture commands that we should not go to sleep with the sun, you know, don't let the sun go down on our wrath. And I said, I want to apologise to you What I said was out of line and it wasn't fair, it was wrong and I want to ask you to forgive me. And so um, that took it by surprise. Own what we do. Don't make an excuse. There was no excuse for what I said. You know, we didn't shout or anything like that. There was none of that. It was just a, a sarcastic comment uh, made in the, in the moment, but it was thoughtless and it was heartless. And uh, it was said with an intention to try and embarrass her in front of our friends. And never did it again. Don't think, anyway, have I? Don't think so. We have to call our specific sins what it is. Oh, God, I've sinned against you. Sinned how? Own it. Say what it is. Don't gloss around with other terms. Oh, Lord, while my wife was behaving in this way, I was just pushed to the edge, to the brink, and I exploded. It was so involuntary, but it happened, and, you know, I need to own it. Well, you're not owning it at all and saying any of that you're owning it by saying, God, I sinned, I said hurtful things and I didn't behave like Christ. There's, there's one thing, I didn't behave like Jesus in that moment. There must be a willingness in us to call sin what it is, to call it sin. Think of Jesus in the garden not my will thine be done he was emptying himself of himself to take on the will of God but when we're in rage with one another or when we're committing a sin of some kind whatever it may be we are voiding ourselves of his will filling ourselves with our will not thy will mine be done This is such an important point for us when it comes to freedom from conscience because the alternative to this is that we commit a sin against one another and we then ignore it. And what happens? There is a callousness grows up in that relationship and we stop talking to each other in loving terms. We stop humbling ourselves toward each other and serving each other because a callousness is raising itself up. This is so important on the human level, let alone on the spiritual level with our Father God. In closing here, and we'll pick up from here next week. John says, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Note the words, walk and practice. He's not talking about an incident where we have fallen into a sin volitionally. It's not not without effort on our own parts. He's talking about the practice of Here, of covering up that behavior. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we're now covering it up. Oh yeah, everything with me and Jesus is just rosy, man. It's just great, you know. We're just, him and I, we're just like this, you know. We're we're covering up. We're lying and we're not practicing the truth. To have open fellowship with him. Remember, he is light and holiness, He sees it all. So we might cover up to other people, but he, he stands by and watches the whole thing. We don't cover it up before him. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. This is the antithesis of the character of who and what God is. We're going to have to stop here. I still have several slides to go, and um, we need to... We need to stop, so we will pick this up here. Remember that we're talking about this issue of, of having a clear conscience, and this comes down to you know, the, the level of human relationships. Think about your own marriage, for those of you who are married. Think about family relationships, if you're not married, and how those relationships are impacted by our own behavior. Don't worry about the other person. In our case with God, we don't have to worry about God's behavior, right? We're only taking responsibility for us. But in our human relationships, we are to take responsibility for our actions and not put a bunch of clauses around it and caveats. Well, you know, look, I know we had a few terse words, but you have to understand I was, you know, I was premenopausal at that point, you know? Say you didn't have control of your mouth, or a demon had control of you, or something. You know, may have felt that way to the husband, but you know, it's not true. Uh, You know, this is classic parenting, man. Little little Johnny or Susie cracks some ripping tantrum, and then the parents go, "Oh, he's just so tired." All you're doing is teaching this child now that life is filled with this excuse for all their behavior. Whether it's tired or he's just so frustrated or just so this or just so that. It's just going to be a just so excuse for the rest of his life to justify any bad behavior. And we, I can tell you our kids hated that in our family because we would never say that. About them. We would never give them that excuse. In fact, we would say, You're tired, big deal. That is no excuse to behave like that. Learn to control your emotions, learn to control your feelings, even when you're tired. Oh, man, I've got to stop, got to stop. But, but this is what we're talking about here in this thing. Freedom from conscience affects us on this plane horizontally with human relationship and on this plane with God. And part of that freedom from conscience, the first part of it, is in dealing with the sin as it is. Sin. Naming it for what it is and bringing it before God, bringing it before that other person. We'll stop there. Praise the Lord. Our Father, we thank you this morning. Praise you for your love towards us. Praise you, Lord God, uh, for the grace and the mercy you've shown us. And praise you, Lord, that with temptation you've provided an escape for us, that we would rest our faith in Jesus Christ in that time. But Lord, as John declared, when we sin, we have an advocate with you. Lord, help us to confess, to own that sin and confess and be humbly sorry before you that we might see the benefits of a clear conscience before you and walk in that. In the mighty name of the Messiah, our Saviour. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We'll continue from this point next week. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.